The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we have a big interview with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. I asked the senator some pointed questions about this new Republican-sculpted debt deal, which will increase poverty and hunger across the country. I asked him whether it was exactly what President Biden actually wanted and whether the whole conflict was a pre-scripted and predetermined piece of theater. I also talked to Senator Murphy about his new legislation that aims to prevent some of the most harmful aspects of social media from endangering America's kids. And I pressed him on how many more insanely extreme rulings it's gonna take for Democrats to finally get serious about trying to expand the Supreme Court. For our paid subscribers, we're also dropping exclusive bonus episodes into our Lever Premium podcast feed. Last week, we shared my interview with Adolph Reed about his new book, No Politics But Class Politics. Professor Reed is a brilliant political theorist and writer, and it was a fascinating conversation about what he calls race reductionism. So you can check that out in the Lever Premium podcast feed. If you want to access our premium content, head over to levernews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. That'll give you access to the Lever premium podcast feed, exclusive live events, and all of the in-depth reporting and investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. The only way independent media grows and thrives is because of passionate supporters and by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. So go subscribe. It directly funds the work that we do. As always, I'm here today with Lever Times producer, producer Frank. Hey, Frank, what's up? Sad day, David. Sad week, really. Uh, succession is over. So that's like half of my purpose, <laughs> half of my purpose, half of what I you know look forward to in my life. I, I don't know what I'm going to do anymore after this. Well, if succession had to end, uh, I, I would have chosen it to end in a week that the Nuggets are moving into the NBA finals. Uh, and I, I truly enjoyed last night watching the Boston Celtics uh, get eviscerated. Now, I, for those of you who don't know, I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, and if you grow up in Philadelphia, you are you are taught at a very young age to absolutely hate the Boston Celtics. Like you, you can't like the Boston Celtics. It's like, it's like a, Oh, is that one of the big rivalries? Well, I think Boston would probably say it's not a rivalry for them because the Sixers were never very good uh, or or they were only periodically good, but for for the one-sided rivalry, it's a one-sided rivalry, right? Where the, where the Philadelphia fans uh, think that it's a rivalry, but the, the Boston fans are like, yeah, you're a joke. Your team has been a joke. Uh, uh, But point is, watching the Celtics lose was absolutely euphoric. Uh, and and But my brain has now shifted from, from momentarily liking the Miami Heat to the minute the Heat 
won the series. Now I hate the Miami Heat because they're up against uh, the Denver Nuggets. Um, now, some have accused me of being just jumping on the bandwagon for the Denver Nuggets, but but the Denver Nuggets are officially my favorite Western Conference team. The Sixers, I grew up as a huge Sixers fan. They're my obviously my favorite Eastern Conference team. And I have lived in Denver almost as many years as I lived in in Philadelphia. So I'm I'm justifying my Nuggets love as not an abandonment of the Philadelphia 76ers, but as a as a, a Western Conference expression of my love for the underdog team. So fingers crossed on the Nuggets versus the Heat. Uh, Miami, great job on defeating the Celtics. Now I hate you and you must lose. That's that's where I come down. See, I don't have any of that sports stuff as a solace, so I'm still just sad. So <laughs> you're, just, you're as sad as Kendall Roy, uh, who, as, yeah. who, who walked out in the ultimate. I mean, he looked so sad at the end of succession. It was it was great. Actually, Dan Levitard, uh, one of my favorite uh, podcasters, sports guy, politics guy, I've been on his podcast. He just tweeted, a, and he's, a, he's from Miami, he's a Miami Heat fan. He tweeted a picture, a, a video of the Kendall Roy walking out, looking completely despondent when the Celtics lost, he said, you know, Boston fans walking out of the garden right now. And all it was was Ken, Kendall Roy walking despondently out. I, I, I really, I really enjoyed that. And yes, I, I lament that succession, succession is over. Uh, and and I should m- mention, we, we talked about succession a lot uh, in the latest episode of Movies versus Capitalism, uh, the which is one of the podcasts in the Levers Podcast Network. You can find it at Pod. I was the guest on that episode of it. It was a really good discussion. Um, And thanks for having me on that, Frank. Oh, yeah, it was a great conversation. I just listened back to it today. I was like, damn, we were all really, we all had a lot of really good points to make the day after this show ended. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it was a it's a bummer that it's over. But on we go. Now, before we get to our interview today with Senator Chris Murphy, I just want to get a few things off my chest regarding this debt ceiling theater that we've been uh, subjected to over the last week, two weeks, three weeks. I'm sure everybody, if you're not living under a rock or in a cave, you've probably heard about this thing called the debt ceiling, that if it's not raised, the U.S. government could default on its debts, which truly would be bad for the economy. I mean, that is that that is the one true thing in this whole discourse is that, yes, defaulting on our debts would be bad. So that is actually true. But it really, the rest of it really does feel like theater. And, and uh, there's two things that I feel like particularly uh, rancid forms of bullshit. The first thing that we've seen and heard a lot of is that, you know, the Democrats didn't really want to end up in this place where they're making a deal with Republicans uh, to freeze federal spending. Of course, they're also increasing uh, spending for the Pentagon. So freeze federal spending on on things that regular people really need, like, you know, food stamps and the like. The Democrats didn't really want to be here. Like, you know, the Republicans are holding them hostage and and that this the Democrats really put up a great fight is the is the is the thing that's been thrown out there. The first thing I keep coming back to on that, it just just bothers me, is that Democrats could have raised the debt ceiling in the lame duck session of Congress when they still controlled both houses of Congress. And they could have done it through reconciliation, a process that would have required only 50 Senate votes. In fact, Bernie Sanders called for that at the time. Janet Yellen at the time said that would be a great idea. But when push came to shove, 
the Senate Democratic whip, Dick Durbin, from the blue state of Illinois, the number two guy in the U.S. Senate, he came right out and said he just didn't feel like making time to do it. He literally said, this is a direct quote, quote, that would not be done this year by reconciliation. It takes too much time. We have three weeks and there is too much else on the agenda. So you have the number two Senate Democrat screaming the quiet part out loud, just completely debunking the horseshit that this party tried in a real way to stop the debt ceiling situation that ended up unfolding, a situation in which the Republicans took over the House and then used it as a way to try to grind the working class into the dust through budget cuts on programs that the working class relies on. So he just came out and admitted it. I mean, Producer Frank, I, I don't know how, how like, I know that we live in a goldfish culture that forgets its entire world every 15 minutes, but the number two Senate Democrat came out and admitted what was going on. I mean, isn't that the right way to look at this? Yeah, I think so. I think it is uh, a, it's like a plain admission from him. Like, like you're saying, you know, uh, I think we don't have the time is, you know, double speak for it's not our priority. Also, we don't, we don't really care if the Republicans hold us holds the economy hostage next year because, you know, maybe maybe for some of us like do want to make this deal. Maybe some of us do want to to cut some spending. And I think all of these I think all of these assholes, they really love the idea of bipartisanship. You know, they really for whatever reason. And I think it's something in their their rotted brain feels like, oh, well, you know, even if you know, even if we have to make some concessions next year, we will have, you know, we will have reached across the aisle to do so. And we'll have that win to be able to go back to our constituents, too, and say, hey, look, you know, we disagree with the Republicans, but we made this deal with them. So, you know, I'm I'm not an ideologue. I, I work I work with all of the corrupt shills. Right. They're, they're, they, they value this idea of etiquette more than they seem to value their stated values. Now, we talked to Senator Chris Murphy specifically about that and whether this was a preordained outcome, a predetermined outcome a long time ago. So stick around for that. But one other thing I want to mention, let's take a look at the Republicans. You've heard a lot from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy berating government spending. Now, it is true, this this bill is a big, big victory for the Republicans. And I should add, anybody you see on television, whether it's a Democratic lawmaker or a Democratic pundit, pretending this is a victory, that this proves that Joe Biden is a master negotiator, if you believe that, Okay, then what you're admit what you're if you what you're believing is that Joe Biden did want this outcome. But the way we understand Republican priorities and Democratic priorities, this is clearly a a bill full of Republican priorities. It freezes federal spending as more Americans can't afford to pay their bills. Uh, It includes provisions aiming to limit food stamps for starving people. It also includes a giant fossil fuel pipeline at a time when scientists say we're in danger of creating catastrophic, irreversible climate change. So this is a Kevin McCarthy victory uh, on its face with complicity from the Democratic president. But the thing that drives me nuts is that Kevin McCarthy berating government spending, he is a guy 
who has been bewailing government spending, even though his entire life, or at least most of his entire life, has been paid for by the government. This dude went to public school. He then went to a government college, Cal State Bakersfield, whose tuition, by the way, was apparently under $800 a year when he went, according to the Debt Collective. And now he's leading the fight, of course, to restart student loan payments. He was a county firefighter and then a career politician for 20 plus years. This dude has barely known a life that hasn't been paid for by government spending. Now, I think that's fine. Like going to public school, going to a government college, uh, being a county firefighter, uh, being an elected official. I have no problem with that. Like, I have no problem with him getting a government paycheck, government spending, supporting that life. Like, ideologically, I'm fine with that. But that person having that life and then leading the charge to bewail, berate, and criticize and vilify the entire concept of government spending. It's like way beyond just hypocritical. It's like, I don't even, I mean, what word would you use for that? Producer Frank, I don't even have a word for it. Uh, I I don't know. All all the words that are coming to my head, I I don't really want to say in front of our (laughs) listeners. Um, I'm honestly like I, I hearing all that laid out that it's it's shocking that this guy has just been like been on the government dole, you know, his whole life. He was a firefighter. That's crazy. Like, I, I, I would love to know if anyone was a firefighter with Kevin McCarthy, please get in touch with us. I would love to know what he was like on the job. If he was like the guy that was like, I'm actually I'm going to hang back. You guys go ahead in the first round. Uh, get in there on that fire. Um it's pretty terrible. It's way beyond hypocrisy. It's just like, it's one of those things. It's just like when you think that politicians, when the, you know, the character of the soulless politician who will say or do anything, I mean, like dude whose life was bankrolled by the government, then becoming the guy who's vilifying government spending. I mean, that's it. That's why people think politicians, so many politicians are completely and totally soulless and inhuman. Okay. We're going to stop there because we're going to get to our main interview with a politician, actually, uh, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, who I, I will preface by saying, I actually don't think Chris Murphy is inhuman. I actually think he's a actually thinking and relatively rational person, even though it is a, it was a pointed discussion that, that we have with him. And I asked him some pretty tough questions and we don't agree on everything, but he took the time to talk to us about the debt ceiling, about whether uh, the outcome was predetermined, whether uh, Joe Biden really Really did negotiate in any real way. We also talk about social media and what he's trying to do to put up some guardrails uh, on social media to protect kids. It's a huge issue. It's one I'm particularly interested in as a parent. That's all coming up next. But first, let's take a quick break. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our big interview today, I'm going to be speaking with Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. We talked about the debt ceiling deal. And we also go deep on the harmful effects of social media on America's kids and how big tech has tweaked its technology to try to prey on kids and what can be done about that. Now, let me let me take a moment here to provide a bit of context on that particular issue, because, again, we, we talked to 
Senator Murphy about the news cycle, what's happening right now on the debt ceiling. But this issue about social media and big tech, this is not a small issue. This is huge. By this point in 2023, pretty much every adult human has a basic understanding that social media is not great for us. Whether you watch the 2020 documentary, The Social Dilemma, which detailed social media's negative effects on our brain chemistry, or whether you've spent hours and hours doom scrolling on Twitter or TikTok, you know that most of the time, social media doesn't make us feel good. If anything, it's purposely designed to addict us to feelings of depression, isolation, and anger. Now, this is especially true for kids. According to a survey by Common Sense Media, teenagers report spending nearly nine hours of every day in front of screens. 38% of kids ages 8 to 12 say they are now using social media, and more than 60% report trying and failing to quit social media, which are possible signs of dependency and addiction, which frankly is what these technology companies want. At the same time, mental health problems in the United States have skyrocketed over the last few decades and most acutely in kids and teenagers. Now, we're not attributing all of those issues only to social media. Issues like climate change and the rising cost of living are obviously super depressing and kids key into that. But social media is almost certainly not helping and very likely making those feelings worse. At this point, it's become clear that the social media companies, big tech, they are largely uninterested in addressing this problem on their own. And really beyond uninterested, they are making profit off of the current status quo. Their business model is literally predicated on using algorithms to hook users and keep them scrolling as long as possible. So that's why Senator Murphy and a bipartisan group of lawmakers recently proposed a piece of legislation called the Protecting Kids on Social Media Act, which aims to prevent some of the most harmful aspects of social media from endangering America's children. This is an important issue. Uh, this is not some side issue. This is real. And I say that as a parent. Uh, I say that uh, as, as someone who has uh, friends who are roughly my age, too, who they have uh, they have kids. This is a pervasive issue. And I am thrilled that at least some folks in D.C. are talking about this uh, because it is a really serious issue. In this interview with Senator Chris Murphy, we also talked about how he believes that loneliness and isolation are some of the biggest issues facing every American in the modern era. And of course, that's connected also to the screen and to social media as well. Here's the interview with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Hey, Senator Murphy, how you doing? I'm good. Uh, good to be with you. Are you uh, recovered from the Celtics loss? Uh, my condolences over the loss last night, although that's why I'm wearing a Denver jersey out here. So uh, I have to say I was rooting for the Celtics to lose as a former Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia, so I just so hope you're, you're okay. So you're, 70, you're a 76ers fan? Well, I grew up with the Sixers. I've now lived in Denver almost as long as I lived in Philly. And so I was obviously as a being born and bred in Philadelphia, or I wasn't born there. I was actually born in Connecticut, but being grown up in Philadelphia, I was rooting against the Celtics. You're on, you're now, you're now on the Denver bandwagon. Uh, you <laughs> jumped on board. Uh, I, 
I, okay, I plead, I plead some guilt there. Although, as I've said, they're my favorite Western Conference team. Okay, so so I've I found a way to uh, square that circle. So, but yes, I'm on the bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, so I am I am a, a diehard sports fan. I'm a Celtics fan, a Red Sox fan, and New York Giants fan. And so, you, if you have sort of that constellation of teams, you just can sort of never complain, right? I've I've lived through lots of championships, yes. and I think the Celtics team will actually win the whole thing at some point. So, yes, I'm pissed off this morning but uh i am i am i am zen about my overall sports experience well hopefully we can complete the job that your team wasn't able to complete last night uh and the nuggets will beat the heat fingers crossed on that and as i said by the way other connecticut connection because you represent connecticut i was born in uh new haven so i'm excited to chat with you um about and i worked for ned lamont on his campaign so uh lots of connecticut connections um let's start with the big news of the uh of the of the week before we get to uh, the social media stuff and the loneliness stuff that I really want to talk to you about. But I just want to talk about the debt ceiling uh, for, for a quick second here. The the debt ceiling negotiations, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, cuts spending, speeds permitting for energy projects, including a big pipeline. One Democratic-aligned think, think tank says the bill will increase hunger and poverty through some of the cuts to cash assistance programs. It seems like this is a big uh, Republican victory, and yet there were a lot of Democrats saying that, that they should have passed a debt ceiling increase in the lame duck session of Congress. Why didn't that happen, and, and what's your take on, on what this bill will do? Well, it's a Republican victory. I don't know that it's a big Republican victory. I mean, so we can rewind kind of two times, right? So rewind all the way to end of last year. Um, I don't remember that we had the votes to raise the debt ceiling, right? At that time, we're operating with a 50-vote majority. You needed every Democrat to raise the debt ceiling. I actually don't think we had 50 votes to use reconciliation to raise the debt ceiling. Um, So I'm not sure that that was even a possibility for us at the 50-vote threshold. But then, you know, rewind to earlier this year, there was a a decision to be made. Are we going to negotiate? Are we not going to negotiate? I will be honest with you. I was a proponent of not negotiating. I was a proponent of saying um, this is um, not normal politics, uh, threatening to take down the entire economy unless you get your very unpopular agenda passed with a knife to all of our throats. uh, And we shouldn't engage. And if the we default, then everyone will know that it's only one party that is sort of appending all these demands to what used to be a pretty routine function. Um, I did not win that argument. We ended up negotiating. We, I, I actually, frankly, am surprised at the small scope of the bill. It's not good policy, any of it, but it is pretty meager compared to what Republicans had demanded. And so I'm Pleased that it's, you know, small amounts of bad policy, not big amounts of bad policy. But if it were up to me, we would have just never negotiated with the terrorists to begin with. I want to ask a question that's come up. uh, It's sort of bubbled up this question of whether this was already preordained, whether this was all theater. There was a Senate floor speech that Joe Biden gave in 1995. and, and, And I want you to listen to the audio of what he said at the time. I proposed, along with Senator Grassley, and he mentioned this earlier, and Senator Kassebaum, that we freeze every single solitary program in the government, that anything the government had to do with, every single solitary one, uh, that we not spend a penny more, not even accounting for inflation, than we spent the year before. 
I, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. So my question when we hear that audio, when you hear that audio and you hear people saying, you know, I feel like this was pre-scripted. I feel like uh, the fix was in from the beginning that this is actually what the Biden administration also wanted along with Republicans. What do you say to people who who, who say that in light of that context? Well, I mean, putting it that way sounds a little conspiratorial, right? I don't think any of this was pre-decided. I'm not a you know, I'm not a historian of Joe Biden's previous political positions, but there is such thing as growth. There is such thing as circumstances changing the way that you think about policy and politics. And my understanding is that um, this president, this version of Joe Biden, understands that the moment that we live in today requires a pretty massive investment in the middle class. And it involves an activist government creating industrial policy. It involves saving you know, millions of seniors from poverty through the preservation of Social Security. So you know, I can't speak to what Joe Biden believed in the mid 1980s, but I'm pretty confident today he believes that cutting Social Security and Medicare would be a really bad idea. And he thinks the government actually has to be actively involved in trying to lift up the fortunes of people who have been left behind by, you know, economic neoliberalism and the global flight of jobs away from the United States. And some of that, I think, is new. I mean, I think some of the things he believes today um, are, are new views. And it is true that he has surprised some people in terms of the president that he has become, given sort of what he has run on in the past. But I think uh, everything that he's saying today is sincere. I, I want a last question on this debt ceiling uh, issue. How much does the obsession, the rhetorical obsession with cutting spending have to do with this fake narrative that was manufactured, this narrative that government spending and not corporate profiteering caused inflation. This was a big thing that, you know, pundits were saying that the Democratic Party has a conspiracy theory. That was one Washington Post columnist, a conspiracy theory that that corporations are using their market power to uh, to 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 inflate prices. And then actually the real inflation problem is government spending. And, and that that argument has been debunked. But I'm just curious, you inside the Senate, how much do you think that fake narrative created the conditions for a, a situation that tries to use the debt ceiling as a way to cut spending uh, with the justification being we got to control inflation? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I'm not sure that I know the answer. I, I, Frankly, you know, the, the political power behind cutting government spending, um, you know, existed well before this inflationary period. And it has been a hallmark of Republican politics for generations. Today, it is necessary in order for them to afford their massive tax cuts for billionaires and millionaires. And so part of the reason why they have to be so focused on cutting spending is because they want to continue to be able to have the wiggle room to finance more rounds of giveaways to their billionaire and corporate friends. So on the question of whether the messaging around how spending contributed to inflation led us to this moment, I'm not sure there's a direct line there because I think Republicans have lots of other reasons, sort of present and historical, to cast their lot with 
cutting spending for the poor. They've kind of always been for that, right? They've kind of always been for cutting spending on programs that actually matter to regular people. Now they have even more reason to do it because they've got to protect their tax cuts for their friends. Real quick, the 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 pipeline in this uh, in this bill, in this debt ceiling bill, are, are you going to support the effort to get this uh, approval of the so-called Mountain Valley Pipeline out of the bill? Do you think that can be successful? Do you think a deal can be preserved if that is stripped out? I will absolutely support trying to get rid of it, but I have not yet heard from Senator Schumer or others why it was necessary in order to get the vote. So I'll listen to the case they make, but that's a really shitty provision um, and uh, it's bad for the country. Okay, let's turn to uh, your legislation, your new legislation about social media. You you have a new bipartisan bill that deals with kids and social media. It, it's something that I'm particularly personally uh, uh, interested in because I have children and I, I I worry about, you know, well, everything with my kids, but also but in particular screens and the, the algorithms wending their way into their brains and the like. Tell us about the bill you're proposing, and, and it is a bipartisan bill, which is actually pretty optimistic, but tell us about it. What prompted you to introduce it and what it would do? Well, I come at this from the same perspective you do, David. I've got two kids. I've got a teenager and a preteen, um, and I have watched with horror uh, the ways in which these technology companies, these social media companies um, are purposefully addicting our kids often to incredibly dangerous, harmful content. Um, they are turning our children into sources of vast amounts of profit um, and uh, ultimately leading to a generation of children um, that are fundamentally unwell, much less well than any previous generation of kids. You know, it takes two minutes from the point at which you sign up for a TikTok account to be to get to the point where you are being fed content that glorifies suicides or eating disorders. That's how quickly you can be sent um, material that is potentially going to send you as a young developing brain into a really dangerous place. And so I've watched what this technology has done to my kids and to my kids' friends. And um, just like we regulated cigarettes, um, it's time for us to recognize that social media is just as, if not more harmful than cigarettes were to our kids. And so to me, it just made sense um, to really be much more careful than we are about giving kids access, unfettered access to social media. So it's a really interesting collection of senators that have introduced this. It's, it's me and Brian Schatz on the left. It's Tom Cotton, who I don't think I'm doing anything else with other than this bill, and Katie Britt on the right. And the bill is tough. It does three things. It says um, you got to have age verification on these sites, real age verification, so that the social media companies have to actually make good on their promise not to allow anybody under 13 on. Second, if you're between 13 and 17, your parent has to consent. Um, I think parents want more involvement in that decision as to whether their kid goes online. And then third, for those 13 to 17 year olds, you can't have these these algorithms that take your personal data and deliver you, feed you addictive content. So if the kid wants to be on TikTok, that's fine, but TikTok can't use that kid's personal data to continue to give them um, more and more perfecting content. Sometimes that content is just stupider and sillier videos 
But for kids that are in dangerous and difficult places, often that content ends up um, you know, promoting really dangerous behaviors. So you're a senator who's looked deeply at the ways tech companies ensnare kids. You, you've, you've looked at that. You're, you're in a position to, to study that. The simple question that I sometimes come back to is, what age is appropriate for kids to have phones? What age is it appropriate for them to, to, to be on these things in the first place? And I also think about why are computers, for instance, so ubiquitous in the classroom, in schools, for kids at such a young age? I mean, there's a whole like, like catalog of questions that, that this brings up. And I just wonder... If somebody says to you, hey, you know, Senator Murphy, I, you know, my kid wants a phone or, you know, how old should they be? I mean, where do you come down on something like that? I don't think there's a universal rule because phones have all sorts of different utilities. Right. So, um, you know, for us uh, as parents of kids in a busy city, um, one of the ways that we give our kids a little bit more freedom um, to explore the city is to have a phone. Um, and so, you know, for us, that has been kind of middle school age um, because that's when we give the kids a little bit more more leash. Um, but I would feel much better about giving uh, my child a phone if I knew I had more control over what else they use the phone for. And right now, there's really nothing stopping my child from masquerading as a 21 year old and signing on to these social media sites and getting sent garbage, softcore pornography, snuff videos. I mean, it's pretty unreal what's on there. Now, this bill would at least give parents the ability to say no. Um, and no, when you're giving a kid a phone, you have some ability to control what it's, what it's used uh, for. But can I just add on one thing? This question, though, of sort of what's happening in our schools with screens, I think is really important, too, because... For a long time, we thought that this was a great thing. The kids were getting sort of early access to technology because this was the future. You had to learn it early. Um, I really worry, you know, connected to this conversation about AI, um, how easy it's going to be for our teachers and our boards of education to just outsource learning to computers. Um, it's a time saver. It's a money saver. It's a salary saver. When an AI tutorial system is going to be able to learn from the kid and give them more relevant content, you're going to see more and more kids spending more and more time on a screen. And arguably, that's good for the kid because they're going to learn Spanish faster. But it's probably really bad for the kid because that time staring at a screen and learning to be addicted to the screen is going to rob them of the kind of real healthy connections that give you a full life. I'm really glad you're thinking about that because, I, you know, I just look at, the, at, at what's going on. I'm not picking on I like my kids school. It's, it's a good school and it's public school and they're doing they're doing the best they can with, with the resources they have. But but the computers in the classroom, I'm just it just kind of creeps me out like there's double edged sword, as you suggest. Now, now I want to turn to this this question of, of loneliness that is connected to your critique of social media. You've been a senator who's been talking about the plague, the epidemic, really, of loneliness. The Surgeon General has reported that about one in two adults in America reported experiencing loneliness, and that was before the pandemic. And I, th I do think that your analysis about how social media uh, sort of intensifies feelings of loneliness and isolation is, is spot on. Why do you believe fighting loneliness 
can and should be a public policy priority? And what kinds of policies can really combat loneliness? I think there is a public policy imperative for Congress, state legislators, governors to talk about this epidemic of loneliness. It's just true, as you said, that there are far more people who are feeling lonely and alone and isolated than ever before. As the Surgeon General has pointed out, there are real health consequences to feeling lonely. If you are feeling lonely, you are also going to be less physically healthy. It, it, it has a physical impact on you, the stress of loneliness, but you are also less likely to go seek out the kind of support you need to feel better. And so all of us are bearing the cost of the health consequences of loneliness because we're all paying that in premiums and taxes. But it is also true that lonely people, people who are feeling disconnected, um, search for that connection, search for that meaning. And when it's not available in healthy places, family, friends, local communities and cultures, they will often find it in unhealthy places. Divisive movements, white supremacy, demagogues, um, people who will tell you that your meaning comes from hating others, right? Not joining others. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that we you know, are watching people storm the Capitol in an era where people are feeling more disconnected from each other than ever before. They often find that connection, that meaning in these really hateful, fringy movements. So I think there's that imperative as well to take a look at it. So those are the reasons why I think we should care for as a public policy matter. And we can get into all the ways that we sort of make people feel less lonely. Part of it is getting people off of screens. Part of it is convincing folks to spend their free time engaged in in-person connection. I just think what we have learned is that the engagement you and I are having right now, well, you know, miraculous that we can talk to each other across the country. It's just, it's not, um, it's not doing the same thing to us as if you and I were sitting having a meal together. It is not as fulfilling. It doesn't make us as happy. And so we've got to sort of, real, we've got to push back on the things that end up addicting us to social media so that we spend more time in person. And then lastly, I just think we've got to start building sort of um, healthy places for people to find each other. And so we've got to have purposeful policies of rebuilding downtowns, rebuilding social clubs, rebuilding churches, right? That's got to be a public policy conversation around how we make places that people can see each other in person. And um, that's a kind of an uncomfortable conversation because it involves public subsidies and public support to things we don't normally publicly support, but I think it's part of the solution. Okay. In a recent article about loneliness, uh, and, and I agree with you, it, it is a huge issue, and I am really glad that that you are thinking about this as a public policy issue. And, and in this article, you wrote that anger, as you alluded to, is a product or can be a product of loneliness, and that anger leads, obviously, to all sorts of bad things. I just want to flip it around, though. What if lots of people are angry, not just because they're lonely, but because they see folks in Washington, they feel like folks in Washington or in their state legislatures are helping the rich while the working class get ground into the dust. And in other words, at a time of like rampant wealth inequality, corruption, a climate crisis, isn't some level of anger rational and righteous? And even if we do a better job of addressing loneliness, do we really want a society that isn't pissed off about those kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, listen, I you know I exist in a inside a movement, the anti-gun violence movement, in which I worry every single day 
that we are not pissed off, that we are not angry on a daily basis at what our kids are having to live through. So, you know, I spend part of my day, right, trying to generate what I think is appropriate outrage. Um, and then I'm spending an increasing amount of my time trying to um, do something about the kind of anger that comes from less healthy places. This is really tricky business for public policy, right? Which is why I admit that I'm stepping into this debate with some trepidation, because you're absolutely correct. Um, the goal of public policy should not be to minimize outrage and to just anesthetize the country, right, to things that they feel are unjust. But at the same time, I think you can be a little bit more surgical and say there are some kinds of anger that come from sort of sources that don't have a lot of positive good, right? There's not a lot of positive good that comes from loneliness, from just feeling like I don't have friends, I don't have people to connect to. So if you attack that source of anger, I actually don't think you're compromising the more rational and more productive sources of anger, which is injustice, right? Um, so I, I, I hear you. I think it's fraught, but I think there's a way to deal with the loneliness problem without compromising rational and productive anger. Okay. So I think one form of productive anger, as an example, is being angry and unsatisfied with the Supreme Court. And, and that leads me to my final question for you. As the senator from the state where the Sandy Hook massacre happened, you've been a, as you alluded to, a leading proponent of gun control. And thank you for that. But you also recently noted that the Supreme Court could eventually rule that even universal background checks are unconstitutional. And I agree with you there, too. The Supreme Court could do that. So the question then is, amid all of the corruption scandals at the Supreme Court and all of its extremist rulings, why have Democrats been so reluctant to advocate for court expansion or even court term limits? The Biden administration opposes it, even as the court has issued more extremist rulings. Uh, and again, even as the court has been engulfed in these corruption crises, what has to happen for the Democratic Party to get really serious here when it comes to expanding the court? Or should should we just conclude that for all of the rhetoric of outrage about the Supreme Court that we do hear from Democrats, that that your colleagues in the Congress are actually kind of content with the status quo? I don't think anybody's content with the status quo. I think it's a it's a very big thing to propose a systematic reform to the Supreme Court. So I'm open to the proposals that exist today. I'm learning about them, but I don't tread lightly into a proposal to dramatically change the number of justices or the terms of Supreme uh, of, of members of the Supreme Court. Um, you might not agree with me here, but part of my worry is um, that I think our party's focus should be on winning elections and becoming a party that is popular everywhere, not just in sort of the East Coast and the West Coast in urban areas and suburban areas, but rural areas as well. I think sometimes our party veers very quickly into discussions about rules changes, um, which kind of distracts us from a tougher conversation about why we're getting our clocks cleaned in rural areas, why we can't win 30 of 50 states, why over and over again we have majorities in the Senate that ultimately um, vote for these radical conservative justices. Um, and so I understand all of that is because the rules right now favor a minority of Americans who support conservative candidates. But 
I also think we should spend some time right now just trying to win more elections and being more relevant in places before we automatically cast sort of all of our lot on um, on changing the rules. I, I, I want to add, I, I certainly agree that the party has to do a lot better job in, in so-called red areas. I mean, one of the campaigns I worked on was a campaign, a successful campaign for a Democrat for governor of Montana. Uh, and that was his whole thing. Brian Schweitzer, that was his, his big thing, right? That the Democrats need to speak, be able to speak to people all across the country. I, I just think that the the court, and I agree with you too, this focus on rules and technicalities, and, and the, but the court just feels so oppressive at this point. I mean, I guess I just want to push you a little bit. Like, does something else have to happen with the court issuing an even more extreme ruling? Like, I feel like the court has has explicitly told us who it is and what it is doing and that you can pass great legislation, but there's always a threat now that it will just be invalidated. I mean, does something else have to happen to 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 sort of change the dynamic here? Right. And there's two ways to approach what has happened on the court. You can either decide to change the justices that are on the court, um, or you can decide to win elections. And winning elections takes much longer, right, to get the change that you need, but it might have a more lasting impact um, on our priorities and the long-term survivability of our priorities. Because if we change the court um, by changing the rules, um, when we lose the majority, um, the other the Republicans can do the can do the same. So for me, you know, my focus right now is on being a more electable party and movement. I'm 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 open to those proposals to change the structure of the court. I haven't endorsed any one of them yet because I am very worried about um, how long it would take us to reorient the court towards the vast majority of the American public who support choice, who support background checks. Um, but I also don't want us to be distracted from our, I think, main um, mission, which has got to be being electable everywhere. Senator Chris Murphy represents the great state of Connecticut, a place that I was born. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. And again, just to reiterate what I said at the top, my condolences on the Celtics loss last night. I'm very much hoping our team here in Denver finishes the job that you guys couldn't com complete last night. But I'm, I'm hopeful Jokic and Murray can do it where you guys couldn't. <laughs> the Red Sox season is still young. <laughs> Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, David. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium, you get access to our special bonus episodes as well. To listen to Lever Time Premium, just head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you get access to all of Lever's premium content, including our weekly newsletters and our live events. And that's all for just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. The app you are listening to right now, take 10 seconds and give us a positive review in that app. And make sure to check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing over at levernews.com. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our producer is Frank Capello, with help from The Lever's lead producer, Jared Jacang-Mare. <laughs>